Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a really interesting conversation for you today with former Trump administration Homeland Security official Miles Taylor. We will get to Miles in a second. But first, thanks for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So this episode today is being taped a few days before Thanksgiving. So we have a big holiday coming up. And we thought what might be interesting and fun for me and Jen and Maddie is to maybe say what we're thankful for, not in that like mushy, gushy, personal life kind of way, but more about like what are we thankful for in the world, in the news? Because the news in the world can be kind of dark right now. And it's easy to say what we don't like and what we're not happy about. So we're going to try to push the envelope a little and try to come up with stuff that we are thankful for. So who should we start with? <laughs> Jen has that look on her face like, I ain't thankful for a lot right now. It's true. All right, my winner. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jen, this isn't winners and losers. <laughs> but I, it's it's in the same vein. I have to say, if we're going to just take a break and do something happy and like, you know, thankful... I am 55 and I am a woman and I have to tell you this is making me so excited cooling and cooking carbs <laughs> it's such a big deal from the science perspective what is that so if you if you take like white carbohydrates which I love like <laughs> I'm sorry I, I just I was up late like night. pasta mm -hmm. and potatoes and mm -hmm. rice and you cook them and you cool them mm -hmm. and then you eat them it's like eating something that's healthy it, this is like the best thing for the, ever. For the listeners out there, do you have any suggestions for Jen? Because clearly her life is lacking right now. She needs a little excitement that doesn't involve cold noodles. Just saying. Just well, saying. I mean, like, I mean, you want us to stay positive. That's very positive. What about in the world? No, no, I'm saying with what? my cooling. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to challenge you. Pick what's happening in the world, in news that... You could cut through the muck and the darkness and say, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the support of Jews and non-Jews who are calling out rabid anti-Semitism. And I feel supported that way. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, actually, um, I'm thankful that in the world we're in right now with a war in the Middle East and a war in the Ukraine that we have a president who is doing pretty much everything right. And that even though the Middle East war seems like it could spin out into World War Three, and I think that's not hyperbole, it could. We Maddie have, clearly didn't get the positive. But wait, uh, <laughs> I'm telling you the positive side of this. We have someone who's an adult in the room uh -huh. and is actually managing this as well as it could be managed. And we're not spinning into World War Three. We We don't have Iran attacking we don't have saudi arabia giving up on a potential future mm -hmm. with israel everything is sort of status quo obviously hezbollah is doing things on the west bank but but compared to where we thought we were going to be in mid-october this is about in some ways as good as we could hope so mm -hmm. i'm thankful for that mm -hmm. i will totally second that and i will uh just make it really short and sweet and say that I am really thankful that we have a smart 
intelligent, intellectually curious, capable, highly experienced, compassionate, empathetic leader in the White House right now. Three people in the back room agree. That's crazy. We can't win any chocolate. Well, we had that... (laughs) We had that human interaction consultant come in last week (laughs) to work with us on our friendship and work dynamic. And I also want to say I am thankful for the American judicial system, which consistently is standing up for the rule of law and the Constitution. Any other things we're thankful for? I'm thankful for the new Wegmans that opened in New York City. It's got really great fish and it's Mm. exciting. We are an exciting bunch in the back room. <laughs> Cold pasta and Wegmans. <laughs> I, wow. went, I went world. Wow. I was going macro on the world. And you I guys are easy to local. please. Well, it's so true, though. <laughs> Your next birthday, Jim. I'm just going to get you like a big bag of macaroni and cheese. Oh, pl- I love macaroni and cheese. It's one of my favorite foods. <laughs> what else is going on in the world that we should be thankful for? Um... October 7th, my inner Jew rose up and became vocal. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who are very grateful for that. Yeah. For your support that There's also the flip side to that. There's a lot of Jews who on October 7th woke up and said, hey, I hate myself. (laughs) But we're staying positive. (laughs) It's hard to stay positive. We could all go to Katz's Deli and celebrate. We could. I'm thankful for Katz's oh. pastrami sandwich. The lean corned beef, no, Matt. No, the oh lean Get out of here with that lean oh my, shit. Lean? Like, yes. How, what? Lean. I don't I like want the, the consistency. No, of the... I want the extra fatty Ugh. pastrami. Fat. Did you guys cut. ever go to Sammy's Romanian? Of course. Okay. So for those of you listening who don't know what Sammy's, the old, now closed Sammy's. They're going to reopen. Are they really in the same yeah, spot? There's a, I don't know about that, but there is talk of them reopening. Had my car window smashed outside Sammy's once. Well, look at the neighborhood. <laughs> Had a great birthday dinner at Sammy's, only to come out and find my birthday present. Um, that was because I actually made the mistake of like going through a suitcase that was in my bag to get a scarf because it was so cold. And the <laughs> guy sitting across the street in the park were like, suitcase, go ahead, have a nice meal. Was it drafty? We're going we're gonna to relieve you of that suitcase and a few other things while you're eating. Uh. Um, but Sammy's was this amazing old school, and I mean old school, Jewy, what you call it, a restaurant or a it deli was a restaurant. or diner? Like, what, what was it? Uh. It was just a, it was a restaurant, but it was dirty and grimy. But they would literally put, you know, like you go into a, you know, like a I know what you're going to say. And you have like a little thing of ketchup and mustard. They had a thing of fat. Schmaltz. Schmaltz, they'd call it, because that's the word for fat in Yiddish. So, the, and you put it on shit like you would put uh, butter or ketchup. Did you ever get their chopped chicken, liver chicken with fried fat. onions? Chopped liver was out of this Ew, And then you oh just God. poured half a bottle of schmaltz on top of yes. it and mixed it Well, they it did in. that at the table. Yeah. And the, oh God, the chopped liver at oh Sammy's and, the, and then the that, chops at the mile long, they were off the plate. Steak. They literally were falling off the plate. Oh. They would bring that, it was like two people carrying like, like a dead alligator to your table. <laughs> like this, this, this Romanian skirt steak that went on for blocks. Yep. Oh my God. You certainly paid for it. They were not cheap. They weren't cheap. And then they had that weird dude playing the piano in the oh corner. Oh, my God. What about the gold on Sammy? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, no, it was it was straight out of a movie, and uh, I was really sad when when I saw that at close. I've been to one too many bachelor parties there, and it was a fun place. All right, guys, let's get to Miles Taylor. He's a national security expert who served in the Trump administration as chief of staff at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, where he published an anonymous essay in the New York Times blowing the whistle on presidential misconduct. He later published the number one national bestseller, A Warning, revealed himself to be the author, and launched a campaign of ex-officials to oppose Donald Trump's re-election. He's worked in both the administrations of former presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. He's also worked on Capitol Hill and as a CNN contributor and is the co-founder of a D.C.-based charter school and multiple democracy reform groups. Miles is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Blowback, and the host of the iHeartRadio podcast, The Whistleblowers. Miles, welcome into the back room. Andy, great to be back here with you. So before we get into all the serious stuff, I heard a rumor that you do a pretty good Donald Trump impression. Is that true? Uh, Rumors rumors of my impressions have been mildly exaggerated, but... uh, Honestly, I, I don't know anyone who does a better impression. Really, he, he's the best. I, I've seen other people do impressions of Donald Trump. No, no. It's it's only the people who've witnessed him at his absolute worst who know how to actually speak like him. You've got the... Maybe it's a little too preppy, Andy. You, it's a little Seth Myersy. You're like in the Seth Myers camp. <laughs> um, I'll take it. But you got the hand, like the, accor- the, the accordion hand thing down all the gestures yeah um what is that i think there might be like maybe there's a spider living on him that's like weaving web between his hands because you can never quite seem to fully separate them or if he does they're down to the side and they're dangling like lifeless dolls yeah. it's a very it's just got a very weird gait and I, and affect i think the hand thing when he does that <clears throat> accordion thing like i I think he's still in his mind, like groping Stormy Daniels. That's what I'm thinking. Oh, okay. Like grabbing that, the hips. I was gonna say grabbing the hips. He's, he's casting like a stupid spell on the audience. <laughs> I mean, he's kind of. Well, doing, that's worked, or it's some combination. That clearly yeah. has it's worked. worked. No, 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 he's quite the magician. Yeah, so yeah, my last ridiculous request is: Can you do Trump just talking about you? You know what's funny about that, and I probably can't make this happen in time while we're on. But what we're going to do is this, folks. I have a deep fake of audio of Donald Trump praising me to the moon that someone produced for me the other day. That's awesome. And it's hilarious. That's I mean, awesome. It's a pretty good deep fake. I'm going to send it to Andy and team and we're going to splice it in here. So, so here's the beat for the audio of Trump praising Miles Taylor. Gotcha. And we're back, folks. That praising of Miles Taylor was sponsored by Nabisco. Thank you, Nabisco, for doing a deep fake of Donald Trump. We could just end this right here on that, as far as I'm concerned. But we won't. (laughs) Because Andy's like five seconds from getting sued by Nabisco. Oh, I'm not worried about that. Uh, Not at all. I'll just throw Ritz crackers at him when they come for me. Um, Before we get into the big news of the day and your book and all the things I want to talk to you about, tell me about... My, yeah. the, little Miles Taylor. What were you like as a kid? What kind of family did you come from? Were they political? Were they left-leaning, right-leaning? When did you first start to percolate about politics and and the career that you ended up choosing? Yeah, it, you know, look, it, my family was kind of your, and is kind of your quintessential sort of Midwestern family. You know, middle class, pretty moderate politics. Dad is a small business owner. Mom's a nurse. 
grew up in a family of six kids, uh, stepbrother, stepsisters, half brother, full, but you know, none of those caveats matter. We're a whole family. And, um, you know, I was the precocious kid in school and, uh, you know, straight A's all the way through. I had one B ever in school in from, from elementary school all the way to grad school. And it was in seventh grade algebra, that B plus in Mr. James class. <laughs> I still remember you, Mr. It's James. Good, it's good you're that not harboring class. any resentment, lingering resentment. Yeah, Mr. James, just so everyone knows, he, he refused to give me that A minus that I needed, but uh, was precocious. But look, I'll tell you this, Andy, I mean, on a serious note, there was a literal moment that the little gears in my life, I feel like turned when I was young. And it's, it's the oddest thing to say, but my mother, who I mentioned was a nurse, she was a school nurse. And the benefit of your mom being a school nurse was if you didn't want to be in class, you just, uh, fake sick. And then you get to go lay on, you know, the bed in the nurse's office with mom. And so one day I think I pulled that stunt and I was in the nurse's office and my mom said, you know, just lay in there and you could pull a curtain around the bed. And a student came in, I was probably in third or fourth grade, a student came in that she called in for a checkup who she was worried about. And the short version of the story is it was a kid from a pretty poor family and in the really poor part of town in the small town we grew up in. And she asked him if he was getting enough food at home. And the kid sort of excitedly told my mom that things hadn't been great lately, but because Halloween had just happened, they went out and they did trick or treat all through town and they got bags and bags of candy. And so they were, they were going to be good and they were eating Halloween candy. And I still, to this day, I get chills when I tell that story. I felt devastated listening to this. Like here I am, boop-a-doo, cutting class, you know, feeling like privileged little middle-class boy going and laying down in there and listening to a kid whose brothers and sisters are surviving on Halloween candy. Mm. That's like, that stuck with me forever. And I couldn't quite figure out the injustice of that. I was like, you know, I, we live a mile and a half from these people in the township that they lived in. And that's, that's what breakfast, lunch, and dinner is for him. And um, yeah, that made me interested, as weird as it sounds, in, in public policy. I mean, really from that moment, I became kind, became kind of obsessed with at the time, extreme poverty was a big discussion. The Millennium Development Goals had just been released. There was all this discussion. So for a, a young kid, it was an odd thing to get plugged into. But I started reading all about extreme poverty. And that's what kind of plugged me into uh, you know, public policy was that, that moment. Mm -hmm. So you eventually found your way into the Bush administration. You were a holdover in the Obama administration. I, I guess some folks call you the deep state. And then you were part of the Trump administration, which is where everything sort of happened to, in a huge way, change your life. Uh, like, yeah, I mean, like, I, like most I, of us, I, the Trump administration changed most of our lives. And, and if it didn't, I want whatever you're drinking or whatever your daily routine is. If you managed to avoid that four years, I want a time machine and I want to come join you. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I'd been a lifelong Republican, worked in the Pentagon under Bush, worked in Dick Cheney's office. And then during the Obama years, yeah, I went to Capitol Hill and was part of the budget battles against the Barack Obama administration and, you know, felt like I was fighting the good fight. And I had no interest in going into the Trump administration. 
Um, in fact, I'd worked with Paul Ryan and his team on efforts to try to sink Trump's candidacy. Now, it's not because I thought he was going to be president. None of us thought he had any chance in hell of being president. Because I thought years from now, we'd look back and say, man, that guy ruined the Republican Party when we made him the nominee. And he made us all look stupid. So I tried to help sink him. Clearly, we failed catastrophically in sinking him. Um, and if it had been any other administration, any other Republican administration, it would have been like dream jobs. I mean, as soon as he won, I was being offered top roles in the White House that I turned down because I didn't want to be near the guy. I knew it would be career suicide. And then it was a mentor of mine, John Kelly, who had been a four-star Marine general at U.S. Southern Command, uh, who went in as Secretary of Homeland Security. And a few months into the administration, we had a conversation with him and he said, don't worry, it's not as bad as it looks inside the administration. It is so much worse. And his very sober-minded view of the turbulence is actually what convinced me that they needed a few more trusted hands in there. And so I, I agreed to go work for Kelly uh, and stayed there for about two years. Mm -hmm. And then you had this life-altering moment where you published an op-ed in the New York Times called I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. That was in September of 2018. You referred to the point you just made, the, the quote-unquote un unsung heroes who were quote-unquote working diligently from within to impede Trump's quote-unquote worst inclinations. And that uh, the root of the problem is, is his amorality. And then you, you sort of describe things that were going on. You painted a picture for us, and this is a quote from it. Meetings with him veer off topic and off the rails. He engages in repetitive rants, and his impulsiveness results in half-baked, ill-informed, and occasionally reckless decisions that have to be walked back. There is literally no telling whether he might change his mind from one minute to the other. The picture you painted was of chaos, absolute dysfunction, danger. And so people that were like, it's awesome that somebody's speaking out. But a lot of people also were like, why did you do this anonymously? Well, one of the words that I would change in that piece is the word heroes, because I don't think there were any heroes inside the Trump administration. There were only survivors. And, you know, that elephant in the room, anonymity, let, let's go headbutt that elephant, because I wouldn't blame anyone who thinks that the decision to publish that piece from within the administration anonymously was chicken shit. I wouldn't blame you for thinking that, but let me walk you into my logic at the time. After two years, or at that point, a year and a half inside that administration, it was pretty clear to me and just about anyone with half a brain that Donald Trump was the master of the politics of personal destruction mm -hmm. and distraction. Anyone who came against him, their message was completely lost in the scuffle with Donald Trump. And so I had an idea, which was born out of frustration. And the frustration was, I'm in these meetings with the president all the time. I'm working with his cabinet all the time, almost all of whom agree he's at best incompetent and at worst a threat to the fabric of our republic, which was what Jim Mattis, his secretary of defense, had said to me at the time. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, if the president of the United States is a threat to the republic, isn't it maybe incumbent upon his top lieutenants to signal that to the world and that wasn't really happening. And so I decided to put that message out there uh, because it's not the job of unelected bureaucrats to contain the president. Ultimately, it's the job of the voters. Mm -hmm. And so the voters need to know if the president's own team thinks he's unstable. So I chose anonymity 
so that people would focus on that message instead of the messenger. Now, my intent from the start had been, okay, eventually I need to unmask myself. I think indefinitely, you know, being in hiding and being anonymous won't allow me to be subjected rightfully to criticism and to, and to question whether I was in a position to have seen those things. That felt to me important to do eventually. But first, I wanted to deprive Trump of that opportunity to go against the messenger and force him to reckon with the message. And you know the irony there, Andy, is that piece was all about how Trump was abusing his powers for political purposes and was incompetent. And his response was to try to launch a Justice Department investigation to hunt down the author and thereby abuse his powers for political purposes mm -hmm. to punish someone whose only crime was First Amendment protected speech. And that was sort of poetic to me is that his response to the whole thing was the point that I was trying to prove. Um, you know, he tweeted out the word treason in all caps afterwards and said he was going to send the Justice Department after the New York Times and after me. Uh, and they did. I mean, Justice Department lawyers started to query the Times and query my my later publisher. Um, and, and as I later found out, they had been looking at ways to undertake uh, a prosecution against me if I came forward. But all of that to say, again, um, you know, folks wouldn't be um, I wouldn't blame them for saying, why did you stay with the mask on for so long? Because the truth is, I kicked myself for waiting too long. And here's why, because when I ultimately came forward in 2020 to actively campaign against him, I realized two things. One, it gave me immense personal freedom and moral weight off my shoulders to just be out there with it. But two, more importantly, it helped give air cover to a lot of my colleagues who'd been really hesitant to come forward. Mm. And by sort of breaking that seal, it, I, I saw how it helped more people come join me in the fight. And I'm not trying to take credit for their uh, for their gumption, but I, I hope it lowered that bar a little. And we ended up being the largest group of ex-administration officials in American history to turn against a president who had appointed them. Uh, and for that, I sort of wish I'd taken the mask off a little bit sooner mm -hmm. so that we could have started that campaign of truth telling what we'd seen in the administration a little bit sooner. Yeah, it's a very complicated, highly nuanced situation in real time at that time. And I, I'm one that tries not to sit in judgment of things. You can Google me and find out that I went through a pretty horrific personal tragedy. And so my mantra is kind of like, you don't know what you're going to do until you're in something something that you could never, ever, ever imagine. Um, you also write in that piece that uh, the 25th Amendment was, was floated. If ever there was somebody that deserved to be slapped with that, it's Trump. Why didn't that happen? Yeah, that it was something I wrestled over at the time because there had been these fleeting conversations behind the scenes. And I'll take you into those moments. I mean, you might be in a meeting in the White House situation room with Trump and discussing an issue of life or death to American troops. And he'd cook up some wacky and dangerous idea like, you know, I want a private mercenary force that I can go deploy that's accountable to me. And, you know, I want to yank our troops out instantly from Afghanistan, you know, which our worry was would result in them being 
you know, on the run and killed. I mean, literally in his mind, it'd be like instant, put them all on the plane, um, which I think would have resulted in a slaughter. Uh, you know, let's pull out of NATO tomorrow. I mean, just any number of just, you know, really ill-considered, reckless things. We'd walk out of those meetings and you'd have cabinet members huddle in the hallways outside the situation room and say things like, if it gets any worse, we have to do something. And there's very few somethings you can do if you're in the president's cabinet and the president himself is unable to discharge his duties. And in fact, the Constitution prescribes essentially one of those options, which is uh, to certify that the president's unable to discharge those duties and replace him with the vice president. That conversation happened more than a few times among more than a few cabinet members. Two things. One, I felt like that was very important for people to know about. You know, there is a responsibility of confidentiality inside any administration. This was far beyond that responsibility. People mm -hmm. were talking about the president being so unstable he needed to be replaced. Voters needed to know about it. Number two, the reason that that didn't end up happening is John Kelly and others, I think, felt like if they actually went forward with replacing the president, that it would potentially spark civil war in this country. And I don't think they're wrong about that. Mm. I think that there is a good chance that if the cabinet had replaced the president, it would have at least resulted in widespread civic instability and disorder and attacks in this country. Because what would Trump have done? Exactly what we already saw him do. Mm -hmm. He would have called it a coup. Mm -hmm. He would have called armed supporters out into the streets. And I think that that was wise on their part to say the best thing we could do, the worst best option is ride it out and let the people take another vote in 2020. Um, and then you add into the fact, the academic complication of, of if you replace the president, he actually has the ability to repeal it, come back into power, and then it goes to a vote of the House. And that's something I think they felt like in the most extreme circumstance, it, it, wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't end up being effective. So while, while to a lot of liberals especially, that fantasy was attractive <laughs> of invoking the 25th and deposing the president, in reality, it seemed likely to lead to constitutional crisis and, and political violence across the country. Mm -hmm. It certainly would have been fascinating to see it play out, uh, but I think you're, you're probably- Oh yeah, I fantasize about it all the time. I, you know, I just had dreams about it last night. So it's probably, that's probably my biggest recurring dream is just uh, kicking Trump out of office. But, yeah. um, but, I, but I think it was wise that the cabinet ultimately decided not to because I don't think they would have been successful. Yeah. Uh, you know, that whole insurrection thing you mentioned, I don't know if that would have happened because that just sounds crazy of like lunatics storming the Capitol, but I'll, I'll give you that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would never happen. <laughs> Let's talk about your book, Blowback, A Warning to Save Democracy from the Next Trump. Uh, you know what I'm going to say, right? Like the next. Oh, Trump. yeah, I do. <laughs> How my, about saving us editors, from the original, the OG Trump? I hope my editors are listening right now. No, um, this is uh, in the book. We define the next Trump as either the return of Donald Trump or a savvier successor. Um, you know, this is probably one of those things I shouldn't say, but I'm going to, which is that, you know, when you're writing something like this, 
you know, I started writing this more than a year ago. You have no idea how the 2024 political process is going to play. And you want to be able to have this conversation about an autocratic leader, whether or not Trump is still in the mix. And so wrote it more broadly. But you're right. Um, you know, while I was working on this book, it became clear that the next Trump would be a return of Trump himself. And so as part of this writing process, I went back and decided to speak to as many of my former colleagues as possible because people can write me off. They can say, you know, I didn't like that anonymous mm -hmm. stunt. I don't like that guy. I don't trust him. So I said, fine, forget what I have to say. I'm going to go talk to a hundred plus people who served in the Trump administration with me at the highest levels, cabinet secretaries, all the way down to the staff assistants who sat outside the desk, outside the Oval Office, and asked them one question. What did he want to do in a second term that he or successor would do if back in the White House? I thought sort of arrogantly I knew all the answers, and I, I thought I knew it would be very bad. Of course it would be bad, and that I could paint that picture even I was stunned by what people were willing to tell me and surprised because a lot of other departments and agencies that I had nothing to do with, like the Department of Veterans Affairs or education, didn't spend time with them while I was in the administration. Uh, those people had horror stories that they'd never spoken about publicly of things Trump wanted to do and was only talked out of because it would hurt his reelection effort. But that in the second term, he wouldn't be facing re-election, so would do it anyway. And that list is extensive from kicking the kids of migrant parents out of public schools, actually. Real thing that the chief of staff of the Department of Education told me that they wanted an executive order drafted to make sure if you were the child of an illegal immigrant, you would not be allowed to be in American public schools. And by the way, there's a legal way, a legally de potentially defensible way to make that happen. doesn't mean it's right. In fact, it's horrific all the way to plans to gut the Department of Veterans Affairs because Trump wanted to use the money from the social safety net for veterans to go spend it on his political priorities. I mean, these were things that I was shocked by, but even more shocking was that these same officials said, oh, no, no, in a second term, uh, you know, these executive orders are ready. They're ready to do these things. And I felt like it was important to paint that picture because there's been a lot of hyperbole the past two years. And I wanted this book to give the most lucid portrait of what that second term would look mm -hmm. like, because we're only going to have one opportunity to decide whether we're going to allow that to happen or not. And we should have as much information as possible. And in the course of writing that, uh, Andy, you know, I ended up talking a lot about my personal experiences in those moments of moral decision during the administration uh, to illuminate some of that discussion, because my experience in the Trump years was sort of a moral choose your own adventure, where depending on your perspective, I made every single wrong decision before making the right one. And I wanted to take people into that because we're doing that again. We're back in these really ugly moral civic decisions, and we need to think about whether we are going to remain silent and make the same mistake again, or whether we as a country are going to do the hard thing and come forward and face the intimidation um, and prevent this country from going down the wrong path. So um, that's what I try to do in, in, in Blowback. And that's what I love about your book is that you're not looking backwards. You're really looking forwards and you're issuing a warning because that really is the key. He won't have guardrails that he had before, or you or a Pete Strzok or a Mattis or a Kelly 
or a Mark Milley. Instead of guys like that, his cabinet would be filled with the Steve Millers and the Bannons and Pillow Guy and God knows who. I mean, it truly is unfathomable to think that that would actually and could and would happen in this country. But can you believe in your wildest imagination where we are today that he is still here, that he still, despite everything, has this Teflon and is still a legit candidate for the presidency after everything we know? Well, let's start with the first part, which is I'm sure there are people listening who rightfully are in such denial that they don't think this will actually ever happen. To them, I would say, we fucking already did it in 2016. And all of us who thought it was impossible in 2016 for him to win were proven wrong. Let's be clear, it could very well happen again. And right now, I always say this, the betting markets have him at about a 30 to 35% chance of winning the presidency. In 2016, on the eve of winning the presidency, those same betting markets only gave him a 9% chance. So the odds makers are saying he has three times the likelihood of winning the American presidency as he did just before he won it the first time. Now, they don't have a crystal ball, but what that shows you is that popular sentiment is even better now for him in terms of winning the White House than it was before. So is this real? It's real. It's very possible. I actually think it's probably a coin flip. If I was going to bet my whole life on it, I'd say probably a coin flip that Donald Trump becomes the next president. Am I surprised? Actually, no, because the one thing I've learned not to get too philosophical is the only way to have inner peace in this crazy world is to learn how to admire human folly rather than be shocked and disgusted by it. And I will tell you, there is a lot to admire right now. We are leaning in to human folly, and we have an infinite capacity to fuck up as a species. By the same token, we have an almost infinite capacity of self-improvement. We always have a choice. And so I thought there was a decent chance we would be in this position again, that we would put ourselves back in a spot where we might consider making the gravest civic mistake we've ever made. And, you know, I'll be real blunt about what my book is about. Blowback is about suicidal ideation. It is about a country that is contemplating potentially throwing away its political life and the American experiment. It's also a, a personal story about mental health struggles that I had. Um, and, and, I, and I really, you know, even though that may sound stark and hyperbolic, I really think we are on the cusp of civic suicide at the moment because from all of these conversations I had with Trump officials, people who served with me, people who are still close to him, the one biggest takeaway was in a second term, he'll take a, a wrecking ball to democratic institutions mm -hmm. and this 250 or so year experiment probably won't be able to survive it in any recognizable form. So I'm not shocked, um, but I also wouldn't be shocked if we end up finally putting this to bed in 2024 and moving on, that's possible. I don't think it's the likeliest scenario, but again, we've got the capacity and the, and the ability to choose a different path. So what do you say to guys like me who would say to you, the Trump-Biden fight was already fought in 2020. 
We had a clear winner. This was before insurrection, before four indictments, before 91 felony counts, before judges calling him a rapist, before his business getting shut down. What would make people who voted for Biden then suddenly switch? And I'm not talking about the extremists on both sides. I'm not talking about the libtards versus the magas. I'm talking about the people in the middle, the, the people that we need, the suburban moms, you know, the independents. What would make them put him back in the office now? Mm, well, I think it's really very plausible that they do. When you look at the data, there's a particular cohort I want to zoom in on that exemplifies this for you, Andy. And that is there were a number of defector Republican voters in 2020 that were people who'd never voted for a Democrat in their lives and who voted for Trump in 2016 and then flipped their votes and voted for Joe Biden for president in 2020. And it's quantifiable. Mm -hmm. And in the key swing states, it was about six to 7% of Republicans who had supported Trump in 16, then voted for Biden. And these people are a real anomaly because they really didn't want to vote for a Democrat, but they were so frustrated with Trump, they wanted to move on. When you look at surveys now, that's six to 7% of Republicans who I think were the game changer for Biden. Because that was also, by the way, his margin of victory in those swing states. So by one analysis, Joe Biden is in the White House because of a small sliver of fed up Republican voters who decided to back him. Those people are now going back to the tribe. Incredibly, you're seeing in surveys, about half of them or so are willing to vote for Trump again. And another half or so are disaffected don't want anything to do with politics, or maybe they're going to write in their uncle. But very few of them say they still support Joe Biden. Why is that? One reason, tribalism is very strong in American politics. And so it's easy to get pulled back into the tribe and not want to continue to stick your neck out there. The other reason that we've all been talking about, and it's unsatisfying, it's just as unsatisfying as it is simplistic, is the telegenics of Joe Biden. You cannot overstate how important telegenics are to voters. And we've all had a grandfather or an uncle who starts to lose their step. And that's not to say that Donald Trump is some paragon of stability. He's not, he's a lunatic. But we all know what it looks like when someone becomes feeble. And when that happens, we start having conversations at Thanksgiving about, if we put dad in a home, you know, what's the next step going to be? The country is feeling that way about the president. And it brings me no joy to say that. I, if it was a head-to-head -head matchup, I absolutely want Joe Biden to defeat Donald Trump. Why? Because I want America to continue. But that slowness in his step is just enough to give independent voters and moderates pause and say, I don't know, Trump's crazy, but he, he doesn't look like he uh, needs to be checked into a home. That's really scary. That That's what it's coming down to. But, you know, Chris Matthews, the former NBC, MSNBC host of Hardball, once told me um, he calls this phenomenon the man with the sun in his face. He goes, if you look back at modern American history since the advent of the television, the person who wins the presidency is the man with the sun in his face. The one that you can most see being outside, being energetic, cracking jokes, being bellicose in a two-person race. That's the person who ends up winning and the one who looks kind of aloof or lost or tired ends up being the one who loses. Then it's such a simplistic way 
to decide who the winner is. But, you know, Chris won the Crystal Ball Award many times for predicting races. And I think if you look at this race, unfortunately, if it's Trump versus Biden, Trump looks more energetic. Biden doesn't. And by the Chris Matthews formula, it probably means Trump wins. Hopefully there'll be enough things to shake up the race that we won't be in that situation. I mean, I get that. And I, you know, certainly uh, I can appreciate that. And I, and that is obviously what some people or a lot of people are saying. But, you know, I mean, you said it, you know, when you watch Trump speak, he still thinks Obama's president. He thinks Viktor Orban is is the head of Turkey. Yep. He he thinks Biden can get us into World War Two. To me, the Biden campaign should put together an ad, a couple of seconds of him jogging, a couple of seconds of him riding a bike, a couple of seconds of him shooting a basketball, one or two push-ups, right? Then you cut to Joe Biden looking into the camera, and he's like, hey, Donald, can you do that? And then the next cut, he's sitting in the Corvette with the shades on, and he goes, too old, come on, man, and then he drives off, right? That'd be a great ad because we know he can do all that shit and we know Trump can't. Why not do that ad? Why not show this man in a way that you just said most people think he isn't? You know what it makes me think of, Andy? The the exemplar his political people should use for that ad is those Old Spice commercials. Remember those <laughs> Old Spice commercials where the guy goes from one thing to another, exactly. and then he's on a horse, and then yes. he's drinking tea, and then he's in a race car. You know, and it's what in Joe Biden's political history has been most effective for him. I mean, when you mention the shades and the Corvette, everyone knows that image of then Vice President Joe Biden, who was kind of cool guy. Yeah, and that guy needs to come back. Um, I I would agree with that. They can um, shift that. Now, I mean, if the narrative isn't good, shift the freaking narrative. Show him as a healthy, athletic, cool guy. Go right at it. You are speaking to, I think, a frustration that the president's biggest supporters have. There is a guy who is a quite famous Hollywood director who's been emailing me with regularity. And and I I, I got to disabuse him of the notion that I sleep in the residence at the White House and have <laughs> morning conversations with Joe Biden because he, th- he thinks that somehow I'm able to pass this along to the president if you did would you guys be spooning we'd probably let's see if i biden is he taller than me he's taller than me yeah i guess i'd probably be on the inside you'd be on the inside yeah (laughs) and and by the way gosh i hope you have at least one or two maga listeners who will scoop that up and just go wild on twitter and be like miles taylor says he spooned the president jan how many we up to to those people i think we have five maggots according to Jan. okay Mm -hmm. well i want those five maggots to know yes not only would i spoon with him but i would be the little spoon i would just be the little guy there and i'd be so happy awesome because you know he'd comfort me so uh you know look he the president's got to he's got to see that and i i think one thing i worry about with biden is he does have, you know, he's got real good people in the White House, but he's surrounded by, you know, folks who are real plugged into sort of the liberal establishment who maybe aren't thinking every day about the Rust Belt that Mm. he needs to win. And they're certainly not people who a lot of them came from that world. But Joe Biden's instincts are blue collar Rust Belt Mm -hmm. instincts. When you let Biden be Biden, he's a deal making, bipartisan, make it work, cool guy with the shades on they gotta let biden be biden to win this election 
And I think there's people telling him that. And I think there's folks that are starting to say that. Um, and then there's random Hollywood directors that think I can do some shit about that and I can't. But maybe you can, Andy. Um, but I think we got to keep pushing that White House to wake up because this is an existential threat, not for the Biden administration, but literally for the American experiment. I'm such a patriot that for America, I would spoon with Joe Biden. So um, wait, are you bigger or little spoon in that situation? I'd, I'd be the little spoon. I would totally be yeah, able to. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's the president. How can you even presume, you know? Yeah. yeah you got to be a little spit. Yeah. I have no problem with that. I'm secure, this, this secure in my masculinity. sponsored by Nabisco. <laughs> Nabisco, the little spoon to Joe Biden. Um, so before I let you go, I got two questions I want to ask you. You voted for Joe Biden. You kind of left the part. Are you a Democrat now or where are you politically? No, and I, I hate to disappoint my Democratic oh, friends, shit, but man. I'm a political independent, but uh, mm -hmm. a political independent who is caucusing with and aligned with the Democrats until we uh, give democracy a little bit of buffer. New poll, CNN Today has Trump at 42, Nikki Haley at 22. Really interesting. The gap is narrowing. Everybody talks about like it's just a given. He's getting this nomination. A guy who has four indictments, 18 million trials next year. Is he really absolutely going to get this nomination or is Nikki Haley going to just do her thing and pull this out. I think she will. I think he ends up getting it, but there is now a more plausible path to the field consolidating. And I feel like we're having the same conversation that we all had in 2016, which was, can you beat this guy by the field winnowing down to a two-man race? Um, but I think that there's a, um, that would be a really, really positive thing to see is if Nikki Haley can surge ahead and that field can winnow down in a way that uh, allows enough support to consolidate behind her to make it competitive. What, in the most likely situation, what that means is probably a really drawn out primary. Um, I don't think there's a scenario where Haley um, surges forward and destroys Trump in the key states. At best, the field would winnow down, get behind her, and it would be a tight two-person race for many months and maybe even a brokered convention. Um, but I still think the odds mm -hmm. are in Trump's favor. Um, and I certainly hope that if even if Nikki Haley doesn't get it, that she doesn't end up caving and accepting something like the VP slot on a Trump ticket. That would be duplication beyond belief. Right. And I'm not a gambling man, but if it was Nikki Haley versus Biden, my money is on you not voting for Biden again. Am I right? Um, no, no, no. Uh, I... I let's see. Wow, that's a really good question. No one's asked me that question. Um, yeah, I don't know if I know the answer. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm. Look, I, I'm very frustrated with. Uh, I don't think she stood up to him nearly enough. I was mm -hmm. there in a lot of those meetings, mm -hmm. and um, uh, you know, I, I really think she played too politically savvy of a path. But if there's anyone in the Republican field I think could help that party, my former party, move on. It's probably her. I think Nikki Haley would be a gateway drug back to sanity for the GOP. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, she's 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 given herself some MAGA edges mm -hmm. so that she can appeal to that cohort. But um, look, I I would be happy to see that over the current situation. And as and I think a lot of independents in this country could live with Nikki Haley mm -hmm. being president. Um, I think she's genuinely a good person, um, and she, you know, in her heart of hearts, she doesn't want to go the MAGA direction. I mm -hmm. think she'd like to go back the kind of a Bush Republican direction, mm -hmm. and we all should want that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, let's let's see what happens. But I, I'd be I'd be much happier to see that race. Mm -hmm. My final question has nothing to do with anything we've been talking about, and you may not have ever had this one asked of you either. 
But it's a window into the soul question. And one way to gauge someone's soul is through music. So I'm curious to know. Uh, although I, I got to say the spooning thing probably gives us a little bit of a window into your soul. But yeah, no, that, that does. We yeah. could just leave it there. We, we but. Could. <laughs> so give me your top five musical artists of all time. Ooh, top five. Five's a lot to ask. I'm going to give you number one and then I'll throw in some others. I'll give you the top two because that's really quick and easy for me. Uh, number one is the Killers. I'm a huge Killers fan. I've always been a big Killers fan. Uh, you know, first album, they'll be it'll be 20th anniversary next year since their mm -hmm. de debut album, Hot Fuss, in 2004. Everyone knows the song Mr. Brightside, mm -hmm. but uh, their catalog is much deeper and richer than their radio hits, as as a fanboy always says about their favorite band. You got to get to the deep cuts. Mm -hmm. Second would be another band that really falls in that category. We all know Kings of Leon as the progenitors of Sex on Fire, but Kings of Leon is a band that uh, when I got beyond the radio hits that I didn't like, by the way, didn't like any of the radio hits. Um, their albums are really, really good. There's great rock albums. Mm. So yeah, I'm kind of an indie rock guy mm -hmm. and those would be my top two. And then I'll throw an oddball one in there, a, a genre that I like mm -hmm. just to make sure people understand that the spooning comment is part of a theme here. Swedish dream pop. Something about mm. Swedish dream pop, man. That's ethereal and kind of techno. And yeah, those those are my jams. But I, I got to throw it back at you. Who, who's Andy's number one uh, artist of all time? For me, it's easy and it's astounding that hardly anyone, anyone says this. The Beatles. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, of, of, uh, oh, of course. Of oh, course. Yeah. Yeah. oh, yeah. They're, oh, they, the Beatles. The top, top hip hop artists of the 90s. We, we love them. <laughs> well... <laughs> actually i do love the hip-hop artists of artists of the 90s uh nwa public enemy snoop onyx dre Pop, that you know, shit's cool again man shit's i've been great. teaching it i've been, I've been not as good as the beatles though i gotta time. say not as good as the beatles sorry i'm not gonna go yeah <laughs> it's, it's the all-time all-time debate, the unsettled debate, NWA or the Beatles? And it's, you know, we didn't settle it today, folks. It, I don't know. It could be one or the other. But I will tell you, I'm, I've been teaching at a university uh, part-time. And when I go onto campus, and I know we're all having this conversation, but it's like a fucking style time machine right now because the kids are all dressed straight up 90s. I mean, people wearing those Adidas flip-flops that used to hurt your feet and those Gap sweaters that say Gap. And it is really, really real but i also feel like it makes me seem cool again it's like i didn't really change my style since the 90s and so i've, I've just slowly uh become cool with those kids which i like all the spooners are cool that's gonna oh. <laughs> you you you, you I, I think you blew past cool with spooning so like i think we should just leave it there and I would submit that we probably need to change our social handles and start a whole political philosophy that we call Spooners, which is just people who support the pro-democracy candidate, regardless of their politics, they'll go snuggle up in bed with the other side if it means saving yeah. the country. Yeah. Spooners, brought to you by Miles and Andy. Especially in this age of toxic masculinity, it gives a safe space to men who are, who are totally comfortable being embraced by another man in bed. There you go. There you go. Straight men. I, I'm, Straight men. Yes. Well, yeah. th this convo I'm, took I'm a, a turn, I'm a, didn't I'm it? A hugger, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
All right, look, normally at the end of these things, I say, I hope you'll come back. I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to say is, no, no, because I look forward forward to the next one. going to be like, who who booked this guy? (laughs) Who booked this guy? (laughs) So I'm just going to say, I'm looking forward to the next one. All right, we're going to leave it there. I do hope you come back. Thanks, Andy. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Take care. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Bye.